aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Please pardon the confusion. You made an ass out of yourself for me. Hey, 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 hey. Welcome to the sixth episode of Two Riders Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a couple of non-bestsellers, and a Bleach Report contributor. The music you're listening to is Croissant Master by the amazing MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to novel, to romance, to comics, to whatever genres you can think of. And today's guest is a real dandy. Marcus Thompson is a longtime sports writer and columnist for the Bay News Group. He was a uh, Golden State Warriors beat writer from 2004 to 2013, then a columnist. And he recently took a big leap of faith and career move, joining The Athletic, the new online sports entity that debuts August 1st. He's the author of a book, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry, which came out last April, and uh, for my money, is one of the best writers out there on the, on the beat. So uh, I'm happy to have Marcus Thompson join us as number six of two writers, Singing Yang. So I want to start, you know, it's funny, I, um, I'm not a, uh, it's not a news podcast in any way, shape, or form, but you have actually had really, really big news happen to you. I mean, your, your career has always been um, in newspaper, your career has always been with the, you know, the, what's now known as the Bay Area News Group, which is, uh, you know, a bunch of newspapers, Mercury News, Bay Area Times, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Costa County. And uh, just a few days ago, it was announced that you are jumping, I guess jumping is right, to, to The Athletic. And for people who don't know, The Athletic is a brand new, it's a really interesting concept. It's a brand new startup online, subscription-based um, it had definitely some money into it. I, I know it started out with 5.4 million, but the, the, what is it? What is the idea? If you were to describe the athletic, what are you walking into here, Marcus? It, I, I would, I would call it like, uh, you know, the Louis Vuitton of sports journalism. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's, it's like, it's like a boutique store for, for sports writers and, it, the, the hook is that it's not based on advertising at all. Advertising has been removed from the equation because it's just unreliable. So the, the model is to, you know, hire great, you know, sports writers, the, the must reads, the people you have to read and make you pay to read them. Right. And that's that's basically what it is. So it's, it's kind of transitioning, you know, while the while. You know, people are willing to pay for Spotify, you know, and Amazon and Hulu. I remember uh, I ordered I ordered title to get lemonade <laughs> and forgot to cancel. But then when 444 came out, I, I had it. Right. So I right. was like, hey, I never canceled this. So I was paying every month for title, you know, but we're just comfortable paying for it. So. You know, they just decided to go into these local markets. It's it's high, it's, it's uh, hyper local. You go into these local markets, like spend a bunch of money on the best writers, and kind of like Debo people into paying. And, and we've seen so far that people are interested in paying for great sports writing. All right. So you um, 
it's a huge, to me, and maybe you don't see it this way, it seems like a huge, terrifying career leap. I mean, you're an established guy. You're a really well-known guy. Um, you're, you've been, you know, with the, with the, with the chain or the, the business for, for a long time. You got there in 99, covering preps, Contra Costa Times, 1999. Something comes along and they say, we have this new idea and this is what we're going to do. Like, how does that even happen? And how, what was the decision process like for you? I don't, I don't know how it happens. It was, it was terrifying. I remember, uh, cause we were talking at first and when I first met them, you know, there is two, these two venture capitalists from San Francisco. And I, when I first met them and they had this big plan and they were talking big, you know, what they, you know, what they sounded like to me, they sounded like Warriors owner, Joe Lacob, who's also <laughs> a venture capitalist. And I'm right. like, I've heard this big talk before. Uh, but when they sent me like the offer sheet, that's when it hit me like, yo, I might really have to leave, <laughs> right? Like, it's real right now. Uh, and, and at that point, it became really hard because not, not, I mean, just the sweat equity alone that I've pumped into that company, it, it was just hard to leave. There's just so many people I have great relationships with. But, but on the other side, I had been there so long, I felt like, I felt like LeBron, it's like, you know, I've, this, I've been here my whole life. I need to go do something else for a change. So I almost felt a little bit of that. Like, if I was ever going to do it, it would be now. I, I just turned 40, so now I'm feeling like I'm having – I need to go buy a red Corvette and change jobs. <laughs> I'm, like, having a midlife crisis, right? So I was like, you know, just do it. Take a risk. And, and they were thoroughly convinced that people will read me. And I was like, man, I'm just, you know, a local columnist – you know, I'm going to lose a lot of readers, but they were like, people will pay to read you. And, and Tim Kawakami, somebody who I really respect, he said, if you do this with me, I'll do it. And so, I, you know, I just felt like it was time for me to, to take a leap. And I feel, I feel really bad. That, that's what I felt mostly. I felt really bad because it was a pretty crippling blow because of the, you know, they're trying to change things. And, you know, they had been telling me that I was a part of that change and, to you know, to lose two columnists like that is a that's that's a crippling blow for any paper. So I felt bad, but I also felt like I had to do it. Like it was time to do something innovative, something next level, to kind of bank on myself and to take the money. You know, to be I mean that's a, that's a lot to do with it. So many times I had to turn to my wife and explain about this passion we have and you know this love and you know that I'm not gonna go take the job for more money because we got work to do here. I just couldn't keep telling her that, right? Now right. it's like, all right, I got, I, I got to do this for, I got to do this for you. So she was on board the whole way, like, yeah, take this job. You see that money they offer, you better take it. And I was like, I don't know. I've been here since I was a kid, and eventually, I just couldn't keep telling her no. And what was the, um, what is that like? So you go into, I'm sure there's some editor you've worked with for years and years. Is it? Are you? You, I, I really am. I love these kind of scenarios. Like I'm fascinated about. Is your heart pounding as you go into the office to tell people how are you, how are you going about it? So I, I live in Oakland, and I went to meet with my sports editor in uh, in San Jose, and it was like during you know like the tail end of peak hour. So it's about an hour and a half trip, and the whole time I'm like playing out all these scenarios. <laughs> like I'm gonna say this, he's gonna say that, and I was trying to figure out a way to tell him 
that there was really nothing he could do. And when I sat down with him, I was nervous. I was scared. I felt so bad that I was going to have to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I felt really bad because I know what it meant to him. And, and he gave me a shot to be a columnist. And, you know, I know he poured everything he had into me. So it, it, was, it was very nerving. It was very nervous. I met him in the office. And then we walked across the street to Starbucks. And it was just like the longest walk. And I was trying to be cool, right? You know, because I'm cool. And I, I was trying to keep my cool. Uh, and I was sitting here thinking, like, this is this is about to be a really hard conversation. And to his credit, uh, Bud Geraci, he really made it an easier conversation because he basically told me, hey, you, you have no reason to feel bad. You gave us great 18 great years. It's a great offer. We would love for you to stay, but this is a big deal for you. And he kind of, like, took some of that away from me. But I, I was definitely nervous, heart pounding. And it's, it's weird to be a writer and trying to find the words to say, like, I'm leaving. Like, those are hard words to say. Right. Like, I have to go do this. Uh, and I make my living in words. And, I, I, like, the best thing for me to do is say, hey, it's been real, goodbye. But I felt like I owed her more than that. I felt like I needed to pull out a little bitty violin and start, and start giving some, like, you know, boys to men epic type song. But whatever. I, um, I actually, when I left the Tennessee in my first job, I prepared to tell my editor and I started crying in front of him. And then when I left Sports Illustrated, I went in to tell my editor and I started crying in front of him. So I am the worst at yeah, the worst you're terrible. Myself. terrible. You gotta cry, you gotta cry in the car. Yeah. <laughs> you can't cry in the spot, you gotta cry in the car. Yeah. So um well so how do you um I mean, in a way they're right, like you will be having at the beginning at least fewer readers. And I wonder is that tough at all? Is the idea of that the idea that you have to that you're gonna you're gonna be part of this process to actually building readership, getting people interested, trying to hook people in? Um, how do you sort of do you protest any differently? Do you have to come at it with different ideas? Are you nervous about that at all? I'm very nervous about it. Uh, I'm 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 pretty I'm a pretty insecure writer. You know, I don't feel. I like, think we are, man. Yeah, yeah right. right? Yeah, seriously, I mean, wow. I can't I believe it. Like, <laughs> I can't believe I finally found an insecure writer. That's unbelievable. <laughs> right? I, I just, it's so weird, too. I'm like, they're they're so sure. Like, oh, man, you're going to kill it. People are going to – and my like my editors are like, oh, yeah, you're going to do great. And I'm like, dude, I don't think I'm that good. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Uh, so I am worried. I've been fretting about this. I made the move on Thursday, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Do I now have to pull out these – you know these epic pieces and write the greatest stories i've ever written in my life or can i just do i just keep doing what i've been doing i I don't know uh the the part that makes it the part that i like about it is that like in in a sense i get to bet on myself and it's it's like if i do well i succeed uh and that's not that that has not always been the case in my newspaper career right Right. if i i I can do great and the operation is just kind of janky and antiquated and low budget and and it ends up not succeeding right right (laughs) because you know the the packaging and, and all the other stuff and not having the right equipment and like all of that stuff can factor in and 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 deadlines i i don't have to worry about that anymore so I do like this idea that finally I, I get to bet on myself. And if I like 
the, the way they have it, like the analytics will be obvious. Are people reading my story? Hey, it's right here. Here's how many subscriptions you're drawing. Here's how many people read your story. Here's how long they're on it. Like, so the proof will be in the pudding. And I kind of, I, I do kind of like that, that it's really all on me. I get to sink or swim on my own work ethic and talent. Are you, are you going to be strictly writing columns? No, no, I'm going to do uh, a little bit of everything. I, I definitely want to do more analysis uh, since we're not tied to deadlines so much. Uh, and we're not like, we don't really worry about game stories. You know, we're, we're boutique, right? We, you got to come get the good stuff from us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I will do more analysis. I definitely want to dig into some enterprise. It's one of my favorite things to do. So I'll probably be a, a, a five horse pony. Columns, features, uh, analysis, podcasting, and, and, and video. So I'm trying to be a five-tool journalist, Jeff. That's my, that's my goal now. I don't want to brag, but I'm a six-tool journalist. I can also make – You are. I make insanely good coffee, like really good. I thought you were going to say author. So you're like a no. seven-tool Well, you're an author really. too, man. You're an author <laughs> too, so, which we'll get to actually. Um, let me ask you, last night – so last night I had to hand in – I do these stories for Bleacher Report every now and then, and I uh, – I did a story that was due, it was actually due a day earlier, and I was a day late, and it was a 3,000-word profile of a college quarterback. And I ended up handing in the story at 3 in the morning. Um, and here's how I spent the preceding about eight hours. I watched the fight scene in Rocky Three, the second fight when he beats uh, Mr. T. I, yes. I made toast. Um I cleaned my refrigerator. I did my laundry. I watched a little bit of um, one of the Transformers movies I was on. You know, I checked Twitter about 73,000 times. And finally, I was like, I really need to go to bed. I'm going to finish the story. So I would say the total time I sat in front of my laptop finishing, well, I need about 700 words done to finish the story. I would say maybe, maybe 17 minutes. And that's my... That's like my burden to bear is that that's how I go about writing these things. And I love hearing about how people go about writing things. And I wonder, are you a, are you a tortured soul when you write or are you just, you can sit down, bam it out and move on with life? No, I'm, I'm totally, I'm just like you. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to force my wife to listen to this so she can see that I'm not <laughs> crazy. And you know what, that you did not waste time. That, that is inspiration. Like you're, you're trying to find it. That I do that. I watch. Uh, man, I will totally watch a show. Uh, you know, throw on a show or throw on a movie. I, uh, you know, he got game is one of my go tos. You know what I watch a lot when I'm trying to write? Right. The West Wing. I'll pull out the West Wing, and and, and just let uh, uh, Sam Seaborn <laughs> and C.J. Craig inspire me. Right. Uh, or or I'll pull out Michael Jackson off the wall or Outcast Equimini. You know, or I'll eat some food. I, I got uh, some uh, pistachios, garlic onion pistachios. Those, that's my writing food. Absolutely. I, it, my wife tells me I'm wasting time all the time. You should just write. You know, like it's a matter of just sit down and words coming out. But uh, especially writing a book for the first time, I really learned you, you had to lean on all those tricks. <laughs> it, it was crazy. I would literally spend 10 hours a day I'm gonna dedicate the whole day to writing. I'm gonna go to a hotel. I'm gonna write all day, and I and I end up doing like two hours worth of writing. Oh, that's <laughs> and the fantastic! Rest trying to find, I'm just trying. To, it feels like I'm trying to find it. It's like looking for my keys. Right. That, that that's how I feel. Like, and I know when it's time to sit down and write. 
it's not me saying, okay, let me sit down and write. It's, it's almost like I'm being forced to sit down and write. Oh, I got, I got what I want to write. You know, like I found it, let's go. And sometimes it just takes some different methods to get there. I have to leave though, because I don't think my wife or my 10 year old daughter understands that or even cares. Cause but I don't <laughs> even just, understand whatever. it. Like, I don't understand it. Like I am, I'm not kidding. Like last night I came home and I was like, so first I was debating, should I write at home? Should I write at the diner? Cause there's a 24 hour diner here. Should I? And I was just like angry. And I was like, I was telling my wife, I was like, I oh God, I fucking hate writing. I don't know why I do this to myself. I hate it. I hate it. This lead sucks. The story is awful. It's fucking awful. And I, I was like, my editor is going to hate it. And she said, you always say this. And I was like, I'm telling you, this time he's going to hate it. This so time, I, right. <laughs> this time he's going to hate it. So I send it in and uh, I wake up the next, I wake up at like 10 this morning and there's an email from my editor. Love the story. Great job. And my wife's like, you're a fucking buffoon because we go through this all the time. And she's as sick as it, of it as I am. But I don't know what it is. Like, what are we – is there another way? Do you know writers who don't go through this or is this just what it is? You know, I do know. I see them sit down and they just crank out stuff. And I'm like, how do you do that? I, I, I have to have something. But, you know, I figured I was just a weirdo. Tim Kawakami can do it. He can just sit down and crank out. Ethan Strauss, you sit down and they just crank out. And I'm like, uh, wh what are you guys doing? Like, how, how do you have all of that already? And like, who did you fight? I figure they're taking something. Right. <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? I don't really understand how you can just sit down and write like that. But right. for me, I got, I, I just have, I have to find it. You know what I used to do? And I can confess to this now since I don't work for him anymore. But <laughs> sometimes I would like, if, the, if my column is due at three, I will literally just on purpose wait until 2.30 to start writing. Yeah. Just so, just so I can get, like the adrenaline rush of trying to write, like I, I kind of need it. I need something. I, I used to do it all the time, and sometimes I wouldn't get it in at three. It'd be like three fifteen or four, and I, and I <laughs> but I started at two thirty. Like, just, but how? Just but how purpose. does it work? How does it work with you? Like, uh, if you're writing a column, I mean, if you're writing just as an example off of a game or off of a something, and the column is due in at six o'clock, do you just if you have that gun to your head, can you find a way to do it? Is that what you need? Yeah, that's the that's the best way. That's the tried and true way to get me to produce it. And I, and I, my editor tells me this all the time. He's like, he says, you write better when you don't think, right? He's like, whenever you just when when like something happened or something is breaking or I'm on deadline and I just write. He he thinks that's my best stuff. So I try to recreate that scenario. But like at a game, uh, something just hits you. You're watching a game, a moment, a scene. Like, hopefully, if it works out well, something just hits me, and I'm like, oh, that's it. And then it's just go, and kind of the adrenaline. Like, I don't know why my wife and my daughter like asking me heckin' questions is a problem, but, like, 20,000 fans at a game is not. Right. <laughs> I don't I don't know why, but there's just something about, like, let's go. Uh, you remember, uh, what was the movie with Halle Berry and Josh Travolta? And oh, uh, uh, swordfish, swordfish, mm -hmm. and remember Hugh Jackman? Like when it was time for him to crack the code, he would clap his hands, he would clap, like, All right, let's go. Th that's what I do. I'm Wait, like, I just right, want to say, go. I love how you, I love how you just expected that I saw swordfish. Like it was like, even Halle Berry has Halle probably Berry never seen swordfish. Boobs. I know she was naked in swordfish, <laughs> and I love Halle Berry, but I think like 
I like the like. I assume that you saw Rocky three. Did you see Rocky three? Absolutely, multiple times. Wait, in fact, let me go on a tangent real quick here. How does Apollo train Rocky? He's fighting Mr. T, and Mr. T probably weighs two hundred and fifty pounds. So Apollo trains Rocky, and he loses. He doesn't enter the ring. I think he weighs one hundred and eighty three pounds in a heavyweight fight, and then he decides he's going to fight Mr. T by hanging on the ropes the entire time. I mean, and then the whole strategy comes down to Eye of the Tiger. It's a preposterous movie. It is. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I, I no- sometimes I watch it and it's like it's like watching a movie from the eighties and remember you used to think the graphics were good. Yeah. And now you're like, dude, I can see the outline from the blue screen from the from the yeah. green screen. Like that's Rocky. It's like I really thought this was hype. Like nope. Like shouldn't everybody in Rocky have CTE? Yeah, like, totally. All they did was take headshots. <laughs> I love how wait, there's this one this is way off topic. There's this one scene in the movie. Mr. T is fighting Rocky, and Rocky literally is has his hands down, and Mr. T's just hitting him over and over again. And Apollo is watching the fight with his hands up, like he's instructing Rocky from the side. But Rocky takes like twenty-eight straight shots to the head from Mr. T. He would actually be dead right now. He would be dead. He would mm-hmm. literally be dead. No <laughs> question about it. Especially Clubber Lang, just giving it all he got. And they never gave him a third fight. Right hook. Never got a third fight either, which was not cool. Never. Oh, yeah. I've seen Rocky too many, far too many times to admit. Yeah. All right. That's fair. So um, I have one of your columns in front of me that I absolutely love. And um, I'm not going to go to the straight in the lead. But you wrote about um, – you're talking about how your sister is a military veteran, uh, Nicole from Oakland. And you were right about uh, Colin Kaepernick. And, and you wrote this. You said um, – Basically, blah, blah, blah. Needed, why is it needed? Because too many Americans feel like honoring veterans happens during national anthems, anthems at sporting events. Because our affection for soldiers and their sacrifice is mostly confined to a two-minute rendition of a song. Maybe that's why so many are railing on 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick for opting out of their only contribution to veteran cause. The ritual of standing and putting their hand over their heart, holding off on devouring beer and hot dogs, is so sacred because it is all many actually do for veterans. And how dare he dump on the one thing they have to show they care? That is blisteringly good. Like that was kind of harsh, though, right? <laughs> no, it was so. You know, it's funny. On the day today, when Donald Trump announced the transgender soldiers were not going to be allowed to serve anymore, yes, I read that and thought, you know, and I'm wondering. So, is that I read like real anger in those two paragraphs? Like just real, like who the hell are you? You know, like all you're doing is eating a hot dog and stand. Who are you? But am I am I misreading that? Where does that come from? Exactly? Absolutely no. I, I am angry. It does. It literally pisses me off because my sister has dedicated her life to helping veterans, and I have to help her get people to help her. And it's not even a new phenomenon, but she she her whole life goal. She could be a millionaire. She could be at the White House, but she was a vet. She uh, she lost. She seen some incredible things. She she went to be a cook and ended up with a fifty cal gun shooting people. Right. Right. <laughs> and and her whole life is dedicated to helping vets. So all I hear from her is about how veterans are overlooked and how they're underserviced and how she's fighting just to get basic needs for them. And, and how like every two months we have, like I have to figure out a way to campaign for her to get a couple thousand dollars because there are people relying on her for food and shelter and, and jobs. And 
And it's like, and this is not new. She's not like this isolated figure. And she's in she's in Little Rock, Arkansas. But it's like I hear her and I hear the pain in her heart when she's trying to just beg, you know, for a few thousand dollars. And everybody's acting like they're just in or oh, oh, we're all in for vets because I handed a dollar to a guy with a vet sign. Right. It's like and especially I remember this during the, uh, the 2008 election. And it's just like all of these people who are you 2004 election too. Who, who use this patriotic symbol. Meanwhile, they allow the, the, the most patriotic to just be homeless and hurting and broke and, and starving and crazy and underserving, no medical resources. And it's like, you don't get to play both sides of this. So it really, it really does piss me off because my sister is a vet and she's seen some horrible things and she has brain, you know, she has PTSD issues because of it and, and brain issues because of it. And she has to do certain things to just, you know, function. And all she does is fight for vets. And, and so that that's why it bothers me. So I, I know everybody isn't out here like really caring about vets like that. I know all the people who are railing and how could you disrespect our vets? They aren't actually doing anything for vets. And there are many vets who could really help, who could really use uh, uh, these people who are so riled up, they could really use some help. Right. People who just aren't helping. It seems like for a, for a columnist in the Bay Area, uh, uh, the whole Kaepernick thing from last year would have been catnip. Like, it just seems like the columns that could have been written and were written must have been just like, like, did you, how did you view Kaepernick, Kaepernick and sort of the, the kneeling and the reaction to it throughout the NFL from a columnist perspective? And, and were you worried at all about, uh, am I going to write about this too much? Is it, how do I have an original take without, you know, having a ridiculous take or how did you kind of approach it? It, that, it was very difficult. And, and you know what? Two part of the problem is I'm like the only black columnist out here. Right. So it's almost like, if there's anything related to relate to race, you know, uh, Marcus, we need you to write one. So I, I remember being off when the Kaepernick thing happened. It was preseason, right? And this, you know, you know, preseason is when you chill. Right, right. <laughs> so I was like, I'm not going. I'm not writing a preseason thing, and I'm off. And then it happened. So there's this first couple way, this first couple days of it's happening. But obviously, I got to write something. So I was trying to figure out what what am I going to say that's unique. Uh, and, and, and I, I do find that problem if, if I just take the the traditional stance, the uh, of w- what you would expect the black columnist to say, right? Whoever, whoever, like everybody who agrees with me will agree with me, and everybody who disagrees with me will say, Oh, of course, you're gonna say that. So, I was trying to think of another way to address the topic and basically say, Look, if how about you just figure out what you are doing, like he whether you disagree what he's doing or not. What are you doing before you can chastise his contribution to whatever the cause? What are you doing? And it, it was hard. And here, here's the thing that I've learned that it, it never gets easy, the, especially in the social media age where everybody has access to you and everybody can say what they want. I remember when, remember when Richard Sherman went screaming at yeah. <laughs> Andrews and I wrote a column. I simply just said, look. Richard Sherman is not a thug. I know thugs. Thugs don't have master's degree from Stanford, right? <laughs> so, but my email was just littered with hate. And I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I, I always take that stuff hard. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm like Cuba Good Jr. in Boys in the Hood. When he came into the house, he was just swinging at the air like, 
that's me like after i get all these emails from people i can't even fight right it's like you get to call me all these names and i don't get to do anything so when i do write this stuff there is an emotional toll so i did find myself like man do i have to write about this again right like can somebody else take it because all i'm gonna do is say what i feel and then i'm gonna have 50 you know, 50 people calling me a nigga in my email, right? And <laughs> telling me to go back to Africa. Right. And I can't do anything about it. So it is, I did find myself trying to find a different take. So not for the people who agree with me. Like, you know, we're in the Bay. Like, <laughs> right. it's not really hard to say, oh, man, that's wrong. Right. Kaepernick should be able to do this. And it, there is injustice, et cetera, et cetera. I just wanted to say something that people who disagree with me could hear. And it was hard to find those things. Wait, I'm fascinated by something you just said. And I haven't, uh, the sixth episode of this podcast, I haven't talked to anyone about it. So it's a good one, which is uh, we live in an era, obviously, where readers have, you know, greater access than ever before to celebrities, to singers, actors, and certainly to writers. And I get, I mean, to me, I mean, the amount of stuff I get now doesn't, I wrote, you know, 1999, I wrote the story on John Rocker for Sports Illustrated. I probably got 30 letters. Now I get 30 tweets. 30 letters is lit though. If you get 30 letters on an article. I get, yeah, but, but I'm just saying like nowadays in a week, I'll get a hundred people saying I'm a bald, whatever, bald, you're a fucking Jew, you're blah, 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 liberal, blah, 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 blah. Like the amount of hate and I've become very, very sort of hardened to it. I do not really get upset anymore. But you say, it sounds like you do. I do. Like, it's hard to shake. Where I grew up and where I'm from, you don't, you don't talk to people like that. You're going to catch a two-piece to the chin. Right. Like, that's how so you're from Oakland, I should say. You're yeah, from Oakland. it is. Right. It's like, that's just not how I was raised. And it's like, wait a second, hold on. We can debate. And, you know, I'm fr- we can scream. You and I can have a debate. We can scream at each other. And then be like, all right, where are we going to eat, right? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but at some point, there's a line, and when it gets crossed, it's like, hold on, who the hell are you talking to, right? That's the natural, like, there's going to be some kind of respect here. Otherwise, we got to put these hands up. Right. And I still just haven't, like, I, I want to be hard-skinned. I want to not care, but I do care. And then I make this mistake that I really had to stop. I, I used to have this philosophy that if you email me, I'm going to respond. Yeah, big and mistake. Even, Oh, my Lord, why did I do that? And then even when people will say something crazy, I'll always start with, I'm going to give you a chance to be civil because I understand in this day and age, you don't think anybody's on the other end or mm-hmm. whatever. And sometimes people say, I'm sorry, I got crazy. I didn't expect you to respond. And then some people would double down, right? Like, no, I meant everything I said, and I had to stop doing that. But there is part of me that does like, what are we doing here if we can't have a conversation? And I don't know everything, right? If an emailer has something to say, it might be actually pretty good. That informs me for my next column. Right. So I, there is some discourse that I would like to happen, but there's so much hate and so many keyboard gangsters that I just need to stop because I don't know how to be hard. I'm not hardened yet to where it's like, whatever. I'm still like, wait a second, who are you talking to? Wait, my favorite, my all-time favorite, I'm sure you've gotten this in some way, shape, or form, is because I used to write back a lot more like you did. And so someone would be like, hey, Perlman, you're, you're an asshole, blah, 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 blah. And I would write back, you know, dear Barry, thank you for your uh, email Um even though we disagree, I appreciate your writing, Jeff Perlman. And the guy would write back. He'd be like, you know what? 
you really are a stand-up guy. Thanks for writing back, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you just called me an asshole like five seconds ago. We're, we're not going to have this nice moment now. You know what I mean? Like, I was nice. I wrote back to you out of politeness. <laughs> but we're not buddies. Don't like, we're not going on a picnic. You know, like, it's so weird, the whole exchanging of information between readers and writer. I think You just have like, to accept their, their olive branch. Like, that's how they take it. Like, right. hey, man, I'm trying, I, I, I'm, I'm in essence repenting. So you got to accept it. Right. I'm like, hold on, we still got to address what you said. Right, right? exactly. It happens all the time. Oh, yeah, oh, man, you're a good dude. I appreciate you. Man, shut up. Right. <laughs> you just used the N-word on me like five minutes ago. We're not friends. Right. Right? We're not friends. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you know how many times I've gotten, the, what I get the most is, man, you're one of the smart ones, so you should be... Oh. <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> You're one of the smart ones, so you—I expect you to understand this. Oh my God! That reminds me of when I was. So I grew up in a very conservative town, and my childhood crush was uh, Whitney Houston, first and second albums, and I loved Whitney Houston. And you—I would tell people in my little school that I loved Whitney Houston. They'd be like, "No, she's pretty for a black girl." And you're like, <laughs> "Yeah, no, it's not really how it works." Yeah, Whitney was fire. Oh, oh she, was. she was. She was. Um, so you wrote a book about Steph Curry. Uh, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry came out last April. And I was thinking, and I say this not as an insult, though it's going to sound like an insult. That is not a book I would have enjoyed writing. And I'll tell you why. Um, Because I feel like in my head, I'm always like, what does a 29-year-old like really have to say about life? And I know it's not that simplistic, but you know, I, I think like, here's Steph Curry. Yeah, you know, his dad was a basketball player. He's always been a great basketball player. Uh, he's a star for a team. He travels first class, blah, 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 blah. He's only 29. He's a great shooter. I wonder how am I wrong on that? Do you know what I mean? Because I look at guys who are very young and I think, is there even enough to write about yet? But you you, you wrote this book. It's gotten great reviews, blah, blah, blah. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, Especially because I know him, I'm like, dude, it's just Steph. Like Steph is, especially re- you know, relative to other superstar athletes, that dude is boring, right? <laughs> right? Like, especially <laughs> you know, in the book, you kind of need something salacious, and I'm like, what is the, you know, Steph ain't did he get arrested? Now we can talk about that, right. you know, like he doesn't have that kind of, you know, he doesn't have the the major conflict that you kind of need to solve or answer in a book. So I th- I thought the exact same thing. Uh, the agent didn't, and the publishers who wanted it didn't. <laughs> so right. I was like, all right, I'm gonna rock with you guys. Was it their idea? I, I want to ask you: Did you come to them with a the book idea, or did they come to you? How that? No, happened? they they came to me. Okay. I I told. Matter of fact, I almost said no because you know I was like, I'm, they just won a championship and they were 22 and 0, and that's when they called me like, hey, we think you're the one to write this book, and I'm like, dude, I'm exhausted. Right. I'm covering a championship team that's about to go back to back, win seventy three games, uh, but then the publishers were like so like into it. I was like, all right, let's do it. If you if you if if you think it's gonna do that well, let's do it. So I didn't think so either, and Steph didn't think so. Steph was like, why would I do a book now? I'll do a book when I'm retired. Was the idea that you would do the book with him originally, or was the idea you would write a book about him? They wanted it with him, but he didn't want a book. Right. So he's like, "Nah, I'm not. I'm not doing the book." I he said, "I haven't done anything." I'm like, "Dude, you're a two, you're a two time MVP, chill." Right. <laughs> right. But his he, he 
I understood what he's saying. He's like, I'm not even finished. How do you write a book in the middle of the story? So I, I agreed 1000%. And then initially it was Steph Curry and the, you know, and this magical season, they were going to go back to back, you know, they were going to win 73 straight, right. you know, but then Kyrie started hating and that kind of killed that. So I had to cut all of the season stuff out and then repurpose it. So it could be like, just, you know, focus primarily on Steph Curry. But yeah, I was with you one thousand percent. I don't know how we're gonna do this. <laughs> like, but do you like how it came out? I, you know what? I'm so proud that I was able to do it. Yeah. That I haven't even really thought about. I don't even want to read it again to <laughs> to critique it about how it came out. I'm just happy I did it. Right. You know, I'm happy I got it done. I, I I'm happy that I can say I'm an author. Like I, you know, I just feel like all this, all this stuff that happens to me, I almost feel like like everything is like a gift because you know I, I wasn't even supposed to make it here you know I, <laughs> where i grew up like kid you didn't make it out like that's just how it is so i'm like yo i'm an author and then i'm, I'm i get to do it in my city so i see you know i get to go talk to kids and people who i grew up with are like i always knew you'd be something and, and i'm here at home so for me there's just like you know too, there's so much pride and i, I don't want to read it and see like Ooh, this kind of sucks <laughs> I don't I only had six months to do it too, so I don't wanna What did you have how did you so how'd you go about writing it? Like did you season ends and you just sit down and hammer it out or how'd you go about it? What was the process? I I had I was doing it like live, right? Because I had to write columns and we were following a team and it was the seventy three it was the you know, they broke the record, the Bulls record for wins in the season. So it was during that. So we were kind of chronicling that. So I would write my column, you know, and then do the podcast and all that stuff. And then I would go at, at night and 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 kind of write, like paint the picture of what's going on. I would get a lot of a lot of behind the scenes stuff, a lot of stories from the season as I chronicle the season and use all of that as like kind of the undergirding to explain the Steph phenomenon. So that's how I was doing. I was like doing my day job and then I had a night hustle writing this book and then day job and night hustle. Then we got to the playoffs. It was crazy. But we signed, I signed January like 27th and it was like, yeah, it's due July 15th. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. (laughs) What? I can't believe I did that. I can't like in hindsight, what the hell was I doing? Are you serious? Was it more joy or misery? Misery? all misery it was. all misery it was no joy it was it I, I spent most of the time thinking i wasn't gonna finish that i wasn't gonna get it done i did i did so much of it like with no with no sleep right like it was just it was all it was all misery and then not only like i'm a torturous type of writer so yeah it was it was rough uh i, I took e- i had to take each chapter like especially after i lost like thirty thousand words of just like season stuff. Cause once they lost, they were like, yeah, the season kind of doesn't matter anymore. Oh my God. So so I lost like 30,000 words when Kyrie hit that shot and then I had to repurpose it. So I had to like, all right, let's figure out how to do this. I felt better after that, you know, you know, I just felt I had more time. I was able to chill and they were like, all right, we're going to extend you to August 15th. They gave me an extra month. Of course, then they got KD, so I was back writing columns and doing both. But it definitely wasn't as grueling. I wasn't on the road or anything. It, it was, man, it was not I, – I didn't find very few moments of joy. Plus, I just totally abandoned my wife and daughter. 
Right. Where did you write? Like, Where do you write? Do you write in uh, your home? Do you write in coffee shops? Where do you write? No, I went to Starbucks. I got a Starbucks by my house. I, I had to go. To, I lived in Starbucks. Yeah. Just because I can't, like my daughter, she just didn't understand, you know, she, and I, I felt really bad, like constantly, repeatedly telling her to get away from me. Like, I don't, <laughs> want, I don't want to do that. I don't want her to remember. I remember daddy always didn't want me around. Right. right? <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to go to Starbucks. Because she was like, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. And then five minutes later, she's got a question or she wants to do this. So I was like, I'm out. And I, I did most of it at Starbucks. Wow, that's pretty good. I, um, I was reading part of it earlier. And I love, it shows your sort of ties to the Warriors and ties to community that you wrote. He has the toughness of Tim Hardaway, the never back down mindset that inwardly hoped someone would try and challenge him. Curry is a gamer like Sleepy Floyd, but even better taking over games and more often than not rising to the occasion. This is my favorite part. He has the energy of Keith Mr. Jennings, infusing games with a frenzy and excitement. Now, Keith Jennings, the pride of East Tennessee State. See, I, I like, I get the Monta Ellis references, Sleepy Floyd, certainly um, Byron Davis. When you get into Keith Jennings, it shows that you know your stuff. Right? Nice job. That's old school. Keith, <laughs> he, he was a little, how, how, what was Keith? What was he like, five, six? Five, seven, Keith Jennings. <laughs> five, seven? Yeah. Yeah, I keep Jennings just see back in the day, like when you grew up a Warriors fan, like you cared about that dude. Like that dude was all you had. Right. right. <laughs> it was the dude who come off the bench and do a little something. You're like, ooh, we like Keith Jennings, because you weren't gonna win the game. Right. So you had to like find whatever you could to 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 get happy about. And Keith, Mr. Jennings just come in and we used to watch just a little dude do some work out there. And he's like a legend around here. Right. That's really good. Good reference there. Um, I wonder as a guy, um, as a guy from Oakland, as a guy who's grown up with this team, as a guy who covered this team, as a guy who's been a columnist around this team, if you ever feel, and this might be an outsider's take, that things are, have gotten too corporate and too, like, do you ever look at the Warriors and think this isn't, yeah, with Mullen and, you know, uh, run TMC, they weren't great, but they were gritty, and it felt Oaklandy, and it felt kind of. Do you ever worry about the disconnect between sort of, as we say in America now, the one percent, and sort of the fans who love the sport and maybe can no longer afford to see the Warriors play? I will tell you, even if I didn't see it, the people out here will never let me forget about it. That is one of the number one criticisms and complaints, is how. Like, you know, the quarter, the streets, right? The everyday person who used to go to Warriors games now just can't go. I remember, I remember going, going for me, going to Warriors games used to be like a reunion because I would see everybody from the neighborhood, people, you know, barbers and people I went to school with. And, you know, you would see everybody. Right. And now you just don't. Like, <laughs> now you. Don't, they just can't go or either they're up and you know way up and I don't go up there because you just don't have time but it, it it is very different and it's going to be even more different when they move to San Francisco that that is one of the number one complaints that there, there was this uh there was just a vibe about Oracle Arena and Warriors games even when they were losing when they were losing, I used to call it Oakland's most expensive nightclub right. because all they did, like, it was like a club scene. You would see everybody, like, women would go dressed up trying to catch dudes. So there was this, like, whole watching women type deal. Right. Right. And there was, like, you know, you got to kind of show off a little bit. And it was just a bit, like, it was a different vibe. It was so diverse. 
and now it's it is very corporate. Now there's a bunch of billionaires courtside, and and E40 and C, you know CC Sabathia kind of tucked off in the corner. Right. So it, it's definitely a different vibe, uh, and I hear it all. It's the number one thing people talk about. They just aren't the same anymore. They just aren't like I remember when we could go to the gays. Now it's just too hard to go. And there are so many people who are like, when they go to San Francisco, I'm not going, even though they're going to end up going anyway. But when right. I go to San Francisco, I'm not going. But that, yeah, in Oakland, yeah, that, that's a big deal out here. I just, I find it, um, I always think about this when I see like, uh, you'll see commercials for the NBA and you'll have a bunch of players saying, you know, obviously they're reading a card, but they're saying, we have the best fans. We love our fans. We love our fans. And I always think like there's increasingly in sports, like I remember going to Candlestick Park. Um, back in San Francisco, and it was this gritty, dirty, windy, kind of dumpy stadium. But the fans were raw, you know. Yeah. And That's and I feel like, you know, like a lot, like basketball is set. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is in the NBA, but it's a very high African American percentage. A lot of these guys busted their ass to get there and struggled and blah blah blah. And you just look out in the stands of an NBA game, and it is insanely white and insanely rich and insanely sort of, I find it kind of discouraging, I guess. I, I just feel like it's becoming less and less within the grasp of the average, average fan in America to go to an NBA basketball game. And it kind of pisses me off. And when, when franchises are going for $2 billion, like that's <laughs> yeah. it's not going to get any better because when you these they they didn't buy these teams for twelve million dollars anymore. Yeah. So if like how how is Balmer gonna turn a profit on a two billion dollar purchase? Yeah. Like he's he's got to uh he's got to make it so exclusive that people pay crazy amounts. I remember this was the ten year anniversary of We Believe. So mm -hmm. like a lot of the old Warriors came in two thousand seven when they upset Dallas before all this championship stuff. Run TMC and We Believe were like the legends. Like of the Warriors, right? And right. and they oh, both of, both of them never made it past the second round, but they were legends. Like that's how bad it was. If you made it to the second round in playoffs, you'll never buy dinner in Oakland. Right. But so all those guys came back: Jason Richardson, Baron Davis, Stephen Jackson, and they were honored and all that. And I was talking to them in in the suite they were in, and almost like to a T, they all said, uh, "You ask them, and what's it like to be back in Oracle?" And they'll give their their canned answer, and then when the recorder stops, but these ain't these ain't the fans we remember. Right? right. They, they all said that like, nah, these ain't our fans. I don't know who these people are. There's there's just the vibe that was there, that's that's not anymore. And I'm not saying the new vibe is like bad, but I'm just saying it's bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. I know what you mean. I do. Um, let me ask you a final question. You are the latest journalist of hundreds and hundreds before you to jump ship off of newspaper. Um, do you see newspapers having a, I don't know, 10 years, 10 years from now, is anyone picking up a print prod, uh, product? Is that, is that just a, is that gone? And do you feel like newspapers can somehow survive this or, or is it sort of over? I think it's gone. I think the, the print paper, like there, I think that the salvation of the print paper will be the community. Right. The community rag will probably have to come back mm -hmm. because the only the only companies that can probably afford to do this thing, how we know it can be done will be the major papers. It, 
uh, you just got to have, you know, a lot of readers and a lot of money right. <laughs> in order to pay great writers. So they won't be able to cover everything. That's just the bottom line. Like, we don't even cover high school sports anymore, right? Like, we had a staff of 15 people on our high school staff when I, when I, when I joined the Contra Costa Times in 1999. Now there's, there's nobody. Nobody's covering high school. So th- th- eventually somebody's going to have to do that and cover city government and, and all that. And that's probably, that might be where, you know, the, the local bulletin can still print and kind of make a little change off of it. But I think everything is going to go digital. I think the, the smart newspapers will figure out how to, uh, to, 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 to get people to pay for a product that they were used to getting for free. Like that's the only way it's going to survive. And right. journalism won't die. And and good reporting won't die and great storytelling will never die. So there will still be a need for it. It's probably just won't be as profitable as it once was, which means the people who owned it and remember the days when it was the cash cow will probably have to get out of it. And the people who see two million dollars as a as a good year will probably be the ones who have to own it. Right. I'm just tired of fake news, Marcus. That's what I'm tired of. It's just, it's I'm tired of the, the phrase fake news. Oh, that and snowflake. <laughs> the two that make my spine. Yeah. What can you do? Um, well, listen, Marcus, I, uh, I appreciate you doing this so much and appearing. And I, I sincerely um, wish you tons of luck with The Athletic. And I will, uh, you've, earned a, uh, you've earned a subscriber today, if nothing else. And I really do appreciate it. Let's just hope I don't have to like go back crawl into my newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a little fear of that in there. You're going to be good, man. I it's I think it's going to work out. I, I did say that when I left. Like, hey, uh, so if if I need to come back in two years, right. you're still good, right? <laughs> Love you guys. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right. Thanks so much, Marcus. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. All right. Take care. I want to thank today's guest, Marcus Thompson, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Marcus on Twitter at Thompson Scribe. And starting August 1st, read his stuff on The Athletic. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on both iTunes and Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. You can also visit my website at JeffPerlman.com. Music today from MC White Owl, one of the best out there. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.